How do we open an entire community to the hidden issues of mental health? We talk about it. We start a conversation. We tell the stories of sadness and stigma and discrimination and hopelessness. But most importantly is that we tell the stories of hope. That was Brenda Wesley, a mental health advocate in Milwaukee, speaking at one of the youth storytelling events that we hosted this year as part of our Kids in Crisis series of reporting. We wanted to give young people in their own communities a chance to tell their own stories about fighting mental health challenges and getting through them. We shared some audio from these events with you in episode five of This Is Normal, but there were so many good and powerful stories that today we want to share more. It feels like the world might need them right now. You might need them or someone you know. After the deaths by suicide in the past couple weeks of Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain, people have been sharing their own stories, talking about reaching out to others. Our focus is on young people and youth mental health, but those two deaths so close together of two very famous people who meant a lot to a lot of people all over the world has been a good reminder of how important it is for all of us to talk about mental health and to try to make things better. I'm Rob Menser. I'm an editor with USA Today Network Wisconsin. Welcome to a bonus episode of This Is Normal. When I was eight years old, I was diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder and an autism spectrum disorder. I've been struggling for depression for about a year now. And this past August, I was diagnosed with bipolar two. Nikita Crisco spoke at our Green Bay event. He said his anxiety disorder feels like someone is constantly behind me. Like if you've ever had your boss look over your shoulder at work, like, are you doing the right thing? I'm watching you, making sure you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, except all the time. <laughs> I'm always afraid that I'm going to mess up and that somehow every single person around me is going to know, just intrinsically know that I've done something wrong and immediately hate me for it. My autism, it gives me trouble with social cues, body language, things like that. Interacting with people is difficult unless I know them really well. Uh, and my bipolar consists of extreme highs and extreme lows. It happens on a daily basis or over a period of weeks where I will be either on top of the world or underneath it. <laughs> we can't compare ourselves to neurotypical people. And that's okay. Some things we can't do, <laughs> we have our limits. But most things we can do just as well, if not better, than the people around us. We all have gifts as well as limitations. Truth time, I was fired from my first and only job. <laughs> a couple months ago. I only worked there for about four or five months and I was devastated. I felt like I couldn't do anything right. This one setback made me feel like I was a complete and total failure. This is a job that I loved, by the way. It was at the school library and I've wanted to be a librarian for years, but some days I would rather just lay in bed all day than do anything else. Not because I wanted to, not because I was tired or lazy, but because fighting my own brain 24-7 is exhausting. And sometimes it took all of my energy 
just to sit up, open my eyes, and have a drink of water. And despite all that, I am often told that I am not disabled enough. That my disorders don't count because they can't tell. You're so normal. You're so smart. I didn't know you had autism. You don't look like you have bipolar. What does bipolar look like? I look like a person. <laughs> and while mental illnesses can really, really suck, we have to remember that our brains are also really, really cool. We see things differently from other people. Most of us probably express those things through some form of art. There's no one who's telling us that we can't do something except for that bully in the back of our heads. In middle school, I never told anyone that I was autistic. I felt like I was broken, that people would never be friends with someone like that. And I had proof, well, what I thought was proof. Kids are mean. But one day in my art class, my art teacher looked at what I was drawing and she told me that I needed to put more emotion into my work, that my art wasn't telling a story. It was pretty, sure, I had talent, but it wasn't going to move anyone. And art is all about moving people. She asked me if I had any strong emotions, if I cared about anything really important, if I could draw from my past experiences and work from there. I realized that I had this whole life filled with unique experiences that no one else had seen. No one can look through my eyes unless I put it down on paper. I never got to thank that art teacher, but she was who made me realize that it was okay to be different. That I didn't have to hide myself away. The first moment was December 12th of 2011. I woke up from passing out because of an overdose on Tylenol at school in my English class. I can tell you that I was embarrassed, angry, slightly nauseous, and terrified because I was already late to chemistry. But as the day went on and I talked to different doctors in the hospital, watched people, including the bravest man I ever knew, my dad, cry over me, and several fleeting thoughts about where my stuff was at school, I realized something. I realized there wasn't one logical reason that I shouldn't still be lying on the floor. There wasn't any reason that I should be awake. And if I was meant to be dead, then I would be. That moment showed me that I was more, I was meant for more, more than feeling like I was worthless and more than believing that I was nothing. That's when I started to believe in myself, my work and my schooling, and that's when I started playing with the idea of maybe helping people as a career. Fast forward a couple years, slip-ups still happen, but I'm able to catch myself before I find myself looking down that ugly abyss. The day I did something that not a lot of people, including myself, thought that I could do. December 16th of 2017, I graduated college with honors. In this moment, I was no longer someone who had a mental illness. I was a college graduate. I was no longer angry or embarrassed. I was still kind of nauseous because I was scared to walk across stage and trip and all that, but 
all the moments that had led me to this, including the heartbreak and the mental illness, made me the woman that I was and gave me every ounce of strength I had to complete something that nobody in my family had before me. I was proud, empowered, and full of gratitude for everything. Currently, and I think for the rest of my life, there will be moments when I don't want to get out of bed. But then I remind myself that there will always be something worthwhile for doing so, even if I don't see it. For those who are still struggling, remind yourself that tomorrow, even when it seems the farthest away, will always come. And what happened today, what happened yesterday, will be gone and it'll be over. Find something in each day that makes you laugh, even just a little, and life won't always be perfect. But as an idol of mine, and someone who made his life's work to bring joy to people always said, we must keep moving forward. Does anyone know who said that? Anybody? It's Walt Disney. Tina Sutherland just graduated from the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point with a degree in psychology. And now she works with people who have mental illnesses to try to help them live independently. And she spoke in Wisconsin Rapids. This next story is a little different. TJ Esser is a high school student in suburban Milwaukee, and he's a transgender boy. He spoke at one of our storytelling events, and my usual This Is Normal co-host, Rory Lenane, who is not here today, wrote a profile of him for the Kids in Crisis series. His story is about coming out as transgender to his family and to his community. And maybe it's sad that this is remarkable, but it is remarkable that he experienced a lot of support. As a result, he does not face the serious mental health challenges that are much too common among transgender teens. We taped an interview with TJ and his mom, and this audio is from that interview. My first communion, that was a big one. I had to, you know, wear the dress and it was... Looks so cute. No. <laughs> um, I had to wear the dress, I had to, you know, get my hair done and everybody was so excited to see me and I was so done with it. By the end of it, I came home and I changed and I was in basketball shorts and a t-shirt by the time everybody got there. I always kind of hit a dead end when I was like, oh, I'm going to get married one day. And then I was like, that doesn't feel right. But now it's like, oh, like I'm going to have a wife someday and I'm going to be able to have kids and raise a family and impact some little kid's life someday. And that, that'll, be, that'll be good. That'll be important. She was like, you're gay? I was like, no, no, I'm trans. And she was like, what does that mean? And I was like, oh, well, <laughs> so this is going to be a trip. So I came out to my mom, and then my dad had come in by that point. He, so he heard me say it, and my dad came in and was like, I'm proud of you. I'm sorry that you have to go through this. I'm like, it's not something to be sorry for. It's just something to deal with. I don't think transgender ever entered my mind. I, I mean, at that point in time, I think the only thing we really knew about was Caitlyn Jenner, and it was blown up so big in the media. So when he did say that, yeah, I, it, I'm like, okay, well, what does this mean to us? Like, what, what do we have to do now? Your hair is almost down to your butt. You know, like, where do we go from here? A lot of people look at it as, you know, something to fix, like something's wrong. And I, it's not that something's wrong, it's that something's right, and like, you need to follow that. And so 
I think that that's a big part of mental health and and accepting your kid is gonna be the way to, you know, keep them alive and keep them happy. And I went on, on Facebook and I created a page and called it Introducing Our Son TJ. We just went on and said, this is who our son is and he's a great kid and he is, you know, still has that heart and generosity that he always has. We had an outpouring of support and love from our community and family and friends. I think people are afraid simply because people don't like change. And they're afraid that we are a change. And we're not. We've always been around. But, you know, kids now are a lot more accepting. And I think that scares a lot of adults because, you know, they're not used to that. They're not used to accepting other people that are different than them. My generation has a lot more acceptance and a lot more good in it than it does bad. And, you know, this is our world. This is, this is gonna be our future. It was in sixth grade when I found out my best friend had an eating disorder. At that time, I didn't know it would be one of the things that would follow and influence me for the rest of my life. I remember her bringing down a brown bag to lunch every day and just taking a soda out of it. She would drink the soda, throw it away with the rest of the bag. I didn't question it. I mean, are 12 year olds supposed to monitor their friends eating behavior or watch to ensure their friends aren't starving themselves? I remember her calling me late on a school night, sobbing through the phone, telling me that she's been trapped and consumed by this problem. It wasn't until the next year, 7th grade, when I was diagnosed with depression. The first time I ever heard of depression was on my way to ballet class with my mother. I remember sitting in the car and crying to her about how I didn't want to go and do anything anymore. It's not that I felt lazy, I just felt there was no point in doing anything. The things that made me happy now just made me feel nothing. Fast forward to ninth grade. My best friend and I are in the bathroom together, at school. We are the only ones in the bathroom. A few moments pass and my curiosity got the best of me and I look under the stalls to see her feet. A picture that I haven't forgotten still is seeing her pale pink Converse shoes facing towards the toilet. I knew immediately that she was vomiting. It's like a bad gambling addiction, she tried to explain to me. Except you don't trade in money, you trade in your weight until eventually there's nothing left to give but your life. The next summer, my sister returned home from a ballet intensive in Boston. At the age of 15, five foot four, she had come home weighing an astonishing 96 pounds. To this day, I can't tolerate hearing the word fat. Whenever someone calls a person fat, I see all the things that it could lead to all the things that I've seen since sixth grade. And I'm an outsider of it. No one can truly understand an eating disorder unless you have one yourself. So what do you do? You sit next to your sister on the floor in a hotel room during vacation. You rub her back as she cries into her hands. You try to get her to come to bed since it's getting late. On February 25th, 2018, my friend committed suicide in the early morning. 
I had just hung out with her the night before. We went to see a movie and everything was normal. We got back to our houses around 10 o'clock at night. I spent the last hour of our last night together, her last night, being sad about a breakup that had happened over a month ago. I didn't find out that she had passed until 7 p.m. of that day. I thought my heart broke when my relationship suddenly ended with a boy, but I learned my heart actually broke when my relationship suddenly ended with my best friend that I've known since preschool. I know she never meant to do this damage to anyone, but this is what happens when someone decides to leave this way. There's a ripple effect and many people will live with a part of their heart missing. Back in ninth grade health class, they made us watch a movie about the events that took place before a teenage boy committed suicide. When I look back at it now, it made us aware of the idea of suicide, but it misled us on what to look for. In the movie, the boy was telling all his friends how much he valued them and gave away several important items he possessed to others. He left note behind for when someone would find him. But it doesn't always happen that way. With my best friend, it was sudden and has left unanswered questions. What we need to learn is how to reach out to others. We need to learn to ask people how they're doing more. You are put here for a reason, even if it isn't clear now. Caitlin Aki spoke to us in Wisconsin Rapids. I was raised in a household that was focused on perfection. We were a perfect family with a big house, nice clothes, and two parents who loved each other dearly. And despite everything that had gone on behind closed doors, we never gave up the vacata in public. Jordan Palmieri just finished her junior year at Lincoln High School in Wisconsin Rapids. Her story is pretty intense, and we are so grateful that she shared it with us. But just a word of warning, this story does involve discussion of self-harm and suicide attempts. I first noticed my own depression when I was in third grade, and the first question I'm usually asked is, how would you know when you were so little? I just kind of knew because that was the first year I felt really separated from everyone else. No one else felt the same way as me. I couldn't relate to anyone. And I'm gonna fast forward like four years, so all the way in seventh grade, and that was a year of many changes. Depression had followed me all the way there, but I had a lot of hope starting out that year because it was middle school, I got to change friends, new classes, and it was just an overall restart. My father was quitting drugs, and this was one of the first times he had been sober in years. But there was also a lot of bad changes that followed right after that, when my mother had her brain injury, and that was one of the first times I went without her support. And then came my father's relapse and when the physical abuse started. And that's when I started cutting. And then I kind of just realized at that point that I didn't want to be here anymore. A lot of people ask me why I didn't go to therapy and why I didn't reach out to anyone and why didn't I just tell someone. The thing was, I did go to therapy. I did want to reach out to people. We had CPS at our door and at my school, but I was always taught to lie in fear that I would be taken away from my parents and that this kind of perfect world we've made would kind of just disappear. During eighth grade, I had a big change. My parents finally divorced. 
I moved across country all the way to Wisconsin from Arizona. And that was the first time I decided to admit I needed help. I went to a hospital and said I was suicidal and that I was really struggling. And I remember I was scared, but also super excited to finally get the help I needed. And I remember when the doctor walked in, I was actually feeling super hopeful, like things were going to change for me. And he looked at me and told me I didn't look like I would kill myself and sent me home. They sent me back to a house that was super chaotic. My mother was going through a drug addiction with the epidemic on the rise. And after that, I had a second suicide attempt, except this one worse. I was in a coma for three days. My heart stopped. I was placed in foster care, a really good foster home. And I was hospitalized again, but only for a week. And I mean, honestly, after that, things started getting better when I was away from the situation at home. It took a lot for people to finally listen to me, and it shouldn't really be that way. I'll be the first to admit I don't know exactly what changes need to be made, but I know that starting with yourself and how you treat other people and how you look at life in general is the first place to start. One more story. In Madison, we hosted a day of action for Children's Mental Health Day, and we had young people tell their stories, and we organized a panel discussion where our storytellers were able to ask questions of a group of state lawmakers about mental health and public policy. And at the end of the event, we invited Chris Saha to speak. She's a mom from central Wisconsin, and she's someone Rory has gotten to know a little bit. She shared her story a number of times, so she stepped up to the stage, and behind her was a photograph of her daughter, Morgan. That is my beautiful baby. Morgan was born in April of 2000, and she died by suicide on June 25th of 2015. She was 15 years, two months, and six days. And I cherish every single one of them. And I feel very blessed to have been her mother. So I get to be worst case scenario. I get to be who you don't want to be. So parents who are exhausted from this battle, please don't give up. And kids, please find hope. I would give anything, absolutely anything, including my own life, to, to have her back. Because Morgan wasn't just a normal 15-year-old. Morgan was the most sensitive and kind human being I have ever known in my entire life. And I don't say that because I was her mother. It was true. Morgan used to get mad at me if I would step on an anthill. She'd say, Mom, don't you know how hard they work? On Earth Day, she'd be out with the garbage bag picking up trash. We lived in central Wisconsin for the majority of Morgan's life, but she wanted to be a marine biologist, so for the start of her freshman year, we moved to Florida. 
She was in a marine science program there and excelled. When you go through a suicide death as a parent, it's just a special kind of hell. It was excruciating. It was, there were many, many, many unanswered questions, but many that became answered. I feel like I became an open book. Detectives were able to extract files from her computer uh, to see what she was posting on social media. She was on sites that I had not heard of before under alias names, so I never would have found her. And some of her friends were aware of how much she was struggling, but they never said anything. My plea on that is if you see something, say something, tell an adult. If I could go back, I would ask Morgan directly, do you have thoughts of suicide? And do you have a plan? Studies are showing that in spite of hyper-connectedness online, we are dying of loneliness. And adolescents are at the top of that loneliness category. Morgan wasn't bullied. We didn't have that issue. But I, I feel like because social media is so prevalent in our lives, if you're feeling bad and you go home and you go online to try to maybe get some support or, or feel better and you see negative posts, it's going to bring you down. I feel like darkness begets the darkness. And, and I know now that's what Morgan was doing. She would spend a lot of time at night. I mean, her sleep hygiene was poor because of it. I wish I had taken her phone away at 10 p.m. and said, get some sleep. I didn't. I wish I had. So there's a lot of things you can do. A couple years ago when I started this speech, my big push was in schools and peer support groups. And it's so refreshing to know that now a lot of schools are going towards that and, and looking to that as a solution. Teachers are overwhelmed. I, I get that completely and I hear that. Morgan's favorite line for me was always, I'm fine. Morgan wasn't fine. I'll continue to speak as long as I can because she can't. My world was better because she was in it. And I'll never get her back. So I guess the bottom line is, please, kids, keep talking. And don't stop and offer hope and hold on and don't quit on your worst day. Thank you. This is Normal was produced by Alexandra Wimley and me, Rob Menser, and by Jim Rosendick, who managed all the audio and video streaming for all of our live events this year, along with Brett Christofferson. You can email us at thisisnormal at gannett.com. Please leave a rating and review of this podcast in Apple Podcasts. And you can find more of our reporting at postcrescent.com slash kidsincrisis. If someone you know is dealing with suicidal thoughts, reach out to them if you can. And if you are struggling, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255 or text HOPELINE to the National Crisis Text Line at 741-741. We all struggle sometimes, and it's good to get help.